Eric Lawson. Cheers, my friend. Hey, cheers. Yeah, good to see you again. You know how long? When was the last time you thought you came on? Let me hear if you know. Uh, last time, uh, seems like just yesterday. It doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I'm guessing uh, two years. Four years. Four years. Yeah, how, how many times have I been on them? Twice well, before? Only twice. I've harassed you only so many twice. times, you only came right. on twice. You don't, ha- you don't have to harass me so much anymore. I won't, because I have your personal email now, so yeah. I got a gift for you, though. You have a gift I have a gift Okay, for you. besides the Manhattan. Besides the Manhattan. Yeah. It's a little homage to one of your favorite books. So yes. I got you a H.H. Holmes action figure. <laughs> this will be a hit on the subway. Yes, yes, yes. You're <laughs> going to carry that and be the weird guy. <laughs> What's going on with that with uh, Devil in the White uh, City? So um, the, the new newest iteration is there's going to be a Hulu limited series. Um, and uh, Scorsese and uh, DiCaprio are executive producers. Um, they apparently have hired a director to do the first three um, uh, episodes, and I guess there is a script for the pilot on, that's been done. So things are moving along really slowly, but it's fine. Do you have any involvement in all of this? I don't, um, and, and I, don't, I don't want it. Why you know, is that? I t- you know, these guys are the film guys, right? They know what they're doing. I know what I'm doing in my little world. Um, and, you know, they often, often what happens in Hollywood is they pretend to give you control. You don't <laughs> really have it. And I, my feeling is I don't need that frustration. You know, I don't, I, don't, I don't need to wake up in the morning and think, you know, I'd really like to change that line in that script. And then have somebody look at me and say, right, <laughs> right. All right, author guy, sit over there. Right, right. Now, I remember the last time you said, I think you spoke to Leo. Did you get to meet Leo yet or no? Uh, I have spoken to Leo. I have not, I have not met him in person. How about yeah. Marty? Have you I met Marty? I have a correction. I have, I have actually not met Leo. I was, I was flashing to Tom Hanks. Oh, oh so, sorry. So, yeah. Now, didn't Tom Hanks buy or he wants to buy in the Garden of Beasts? Everything's, everything's under option. I'm so excited Except you. Isaac Storm. Okay. Um, everything's <laughs> under option. Nothing's been made. <laughs> so, but, but it did put my kids through college. So, I, you, so you say that when you see Leo, Leo paid for this, right? Absolutely. So now, now Tom Hanks, you know, he he got the rights to uh, to In the Garden of Beasts, right? And um, I have met him, and we've had a couple of conversations, exchanged emails, and so forth. Great guy, you know. Um, what he's going to do or when he's going to do it? I mean, I, I, I just feel like saying, look, look, you know, let's get the ball rolling here. Or, or put another way, you know, <laughs> um, and uh, you know. So, but that's that's kind of exciting too, you do, know. Does there a, is there like a statute of limitations when they buy the product? <laughs> like, do they have sure. to put something? Does it expire? It there is a statute of limitations because, in the sense that when you when you acquire an option, um, you get it for a certain period of time. Typically, the first round. Well, it depends on how how much in demand the project is. Might be uh, typically the first first option is about eighteen months. When the 18 months um, expires, then you go to a second option, if they're willing to pay for it, could be six months. If they just say, look, we need a little more time, or it could be another year, or it could be another 18 months, at which point the clock rolls again, and then they have to pay you again, and it just goes on you know, into the future. So, so, yeah, and that's fine with me. When I have on certain guests, I've had on like Olympic gold medalists, so I'm saying, hey, I'm here with... Super Bowl champion Chris Canty, gold medalist Dan O'Brien. Are you? Uh, do you require New York Times best-selling Eric Larson? Is that how we have to introduce you? Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> New York Times best-selling author Eric Larson. No, 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 no. I, I, however, however you want to introduce my friend Eric Larson. Well, congratulations on another book, The Splendid and the Vile. Thank you. How much pressure is it? Not just this book, finishing the book. When you finally finish the book, what right. kind of relief is that? Because I've had a lot of authors on. They're saying it's one of their best feelings. Just. <sighs> done with that book. Is it a good relief? Uh, not for me because, I, honestly, you're never done. You know, you're never done. Well, the, the, the point when you're done is when you get uh, uh, the, the first, second, and third pass proofs. That's, these are the, they look like the pages, only they're not bound yet. The third pass, you, you see it once, you correct lots of stuff. You see it the second time, you correct lots of stuff. The third pass proofs, if you get to go to the third pass, um, that's essentially it. That's the last time you get to touch that book. And to me, at that point, it's not like I'm relieved at all. I'm more like, you know, what's going to happen now? You know, now in six months, this book's going to be out there. Am I going to get destroyed? Am I going to get trashed? And when you deal with a subject like Churchill, I mean, this, this book was the toughest project that I've done because... Look, I knew people had written about Churchill before. 
obviously, you know. What I didn't expect was this feeling of how many people were looking over my shoulder, you know. And I was just trying to get everything right, so much to the point where my, my uh, I won't call it my final draft, but the draft that was uh, just before the final draft was like 900 pages long. 900 pages long, which is ridiculous. My publisher, first of all, wouldn't want to publish it. Nobody would want to read it, right? Uh-huh. And so, man, I just had to cut that thing, cut, 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 and get it down to a reasonable length. And even then, I just was so uncertain about the project. <laughs> Truly, you can ask my wife this. A month before the book finally went to my, my editor for copy editing, to, to be transmitted, as they say, to the copy editor. A um, month before that, I told my wife, I said, you know, I might actually just kill this project. Wow. And, and, and she, she, of course, knows me, and she just gave me the usual look. I'm yeah, <laughs> right, fine. Uh, but, but no, because, because and, and I was actually telling myself, look, I learned so much about Churchill, learned so much about things that I had known nothing about before. What did I lose? Nothing. You know, I mean, I, I went to, you know, hell to get this thing done. But if it isn't going to work the way I want it to work, why publish it? But cooler heads prevailed, um, and I just sort of got out of my little funk and just resolved to make it what I wanted it to be in the first place. Because you actually answered two of my next questions. One, they say perfect is the enemy of good. And I always <laughs> wonder how these authors, like I'm back in college right now, I'm going for my master's, and when I finish a report, I read it over three or four or five times and I get so nervous. I can't picture you. This is a book that millions are going to read. How many times you're going through every word over and over, knowing when it's finished? Well, it's true. But first, what master's are you getting? Uh, criminal justice. Oh, good, good. John Jay? Mm-hmm. Oh, cool, cool. So, uh, yeah, so your question. Um, like, how do you know when it's done? Like, how do you know, okay, this is my last period, I'm good, here. I'd, you, be, so, you, I'd be so nervous. You know, when, you know when you're done, um, when you are just so fed up with the whole project, so, so done with the characters, with, you know, by the time I'm done with the book, I don't like anybody, <laughs> you know? But, but seriously, it's true, it's true. I mean, I did like Churchill. I mean, he's, he's, he's pretty much a likable guy. But mm-hmm. in, in past books, I mean, you know, when, when you start thinking that your hero is Holmes, you know, you know you've gone <laughs> off, the, <laughs> off, off, off the deep end. But, but to me, the most important part of the whole writing process is, is going over it and over it and over it and over it. You know, rewriting and rewriting and cutting and cutting and rewriting. I mean, I just, I do it compulsively. I, might, I probably did complete rewrites of this book eight times and it's a long book it's a longish book mm-hmm. it's 500 pages you know before notes 450 before notes so yeah I, that's what makes that's what makes a book ultimately work is if you just go over everything and even then even then the miracle of this stuff the dark miracle is that when you get time when you go to the the copy editing process the things the copy editor spots it's like holy you know, am I allowed to say shit? Of course you can. Yeah, Eric Larson, you can say whatever you want. It's like, holy shit, did I, how did that get passed? You know, and then come the page proofs, and there's more stuff in the page proofs. And then even the third pass proof, you find things that, that would have gotten through. So at this point in my career, I know that no matter what I publish, how I publish it, I'm going to hear from somebody. Mm-hmm. I'm going to hear from somebody, you know, about, you know, you know, I loved your book, but on page 58, but. you <laughs> did not. So, so actually for this, because of the climate we all are sort of operating in of now, course. and especially because of the world of, of Churchill and Churchill's scholarship and everybody who thinks they know more than you, I decided that I was going to have three Churchill experts read the book first. Ooh, before, that's intimidating. Before publication. Well, as, well I, so, yes, I, I also had a professional fact-checker um, uh, do a, a complete dust-off. You can of, go to Twitter for that. Twitter will give you all the fact-checking. <laughs> well, well, well so, so, and the reason I mentioned that I, I hired this professional fact-checker, she's very good. She's, she does all the, all the investigative projects for the Washington Post. She's very, very good. I was talking to her about whether I should send it out to some of these experts. And she's like, you know, I, I, I think you should. Because, you know, better to find out now than after the book comes out. Makes sense, <laughs> so doesn't it? Like, absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, they all came in with, all these, all these Churchill experts came in with the most interesting things. Nothing, thankfully, nothing cataclysmic, okay. you know. Um, I mean, nothing even close to cataclysmic, but little, little things. Like, apparently in Britain, nobody says, um, 
Yeah, you, you always want to have a second reference for something. So 10 Downing Street is where the prime minister's office is, right? Uh, but you can't say 10 Downing Street four times in the same paragraph, so you need the second reference, right? So, so um, in Britain, apparently, they don't say just 10 Downing. They say 10 Downing Street or Downing Street or number 10, not 10 Downing. Oh, okay. Who knew? <laughs> so, so, and I had used that all the time, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but I, 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 I finally uh, kind of came to a, a compromise with myself saying that, okay, I have an American audience, you know. <laughs> If, if, if I'm repeating this stuff too much in the course of two paragraphs, and if 10 Downing solves it, I'll use it. You'll use it. Uh, so I probably have that in two or three places in the book. But all these little things were really, really valuable. You know, just, but more importantly, I got buy-in. You know, these guys, they're on record as having, you know, one guy who read it was the head, is a very nice guy, um, is the head of the Churchill Archives at Cambridge, mm-hmm. um, you know, in, in, in England. Um, Churchill College in Cambridge, and um, so it was, that was really good. But I, I did that because, you know, you, you got to be right. You got to be right. So on your Twitter, you posted I think it was thousands of pictures of notes and everything. You're like, time for me to put the book together. What'd you do with those pieces of paper? Because I'm gonna tell you why. I don't know if you read your comments. People wanted to buy them. Like, people want that stuff. What do you do with that stuff? Because if you didn't sell them, I will be the head of the if Eric Lawson merchandise page, and we should be selling these. If I'd known that, I would have yeah, sold them. Well, sold I'm, them in, I'm here to do that. We can be important. What would you do with all those? All that stuff? Yeah. I, I, people want that I don't stuff. Know. It's, uh, they're all in big, big, plastic, <laughs> big plastic bins in the basement of my building. So. Since all your books, you know, the best-selling books, do you ever feel a sense of pressure? Like, hey, I'm releasing a book. I know it's gonna, You know it's going to be on every list. It's going to be the summer read, must I, I don't read. know that. I don't know that. Really? No, I never know that. Are you kidding? That that's part of the terror of the whole process. Okay. You can never assume anything. Wow. Because right? like, I wonder if you always felt like pressure, like this book is going to be good because it's going to be on every list. Well, no. The, it's more the pressure is, you know, the pressure is, are people going to like this book as much as the, the one before? Okay. But I have to qualify that and say, you know, it's not like I'm I'm trying to write this book so that people like it. You know, that's not it. I, my my guiding philosophy is that if, if I write this book as well as I can, um, to my satisfaction, people are going to like it. So it's not like I'm really striving to have them like the book. I'm striving to do the book that is so good that they will like it. Did you it's can, a diff- there's a difference there. Were you nervous a little bit that sales would be sluggish? Not because your name's not heavy, because of quarantine, because of what's going on. You didn't get to do a press tour, and the Eric Lawson press tours are pretty big. Well, this was a, this was actually a very interesting thing that that, that happened. Um, you know, um, I mean, talk about talk about timing. It, it actually turned out to be very positive. I know, weird. So, so. Book launches on February. My my first event was in Brooklyn on February 24th, mm-hmm. but it wasn't an official event. The next day, February 25th, I was on a plane. Boom, starting my tour. Went great. I mean, it was, it was like a suspense novel because you know I'm, I'm on this tour, right? Um, flying all over the country, and and in the background there are all these little moments of tension and and scary stuff happening. You know, um, you know, little rumors about things happening here, there, and everything. Probably one. Of, Probably one of the <laughs> scariest, most telling things that I saw was in the men's room at O'Hare Airport. Uh, when I turned around to go to the sink and wash my hands, and there were lines in front of each sink. Wow. Like like four or five guys you never at see each that. sink. You never. never. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, oh, my God, we're all going to die. <laughs> and so, so, but what happened with the tour was I went to all these great places, really Really great crowds, and it was very interesting. As things got a little bit ner- more nerve-wracking, I, I think th- uh, the first mask turned up in the audience about two and a half weeks in, and that was in Wichita, I think. One mask, and that's really the only mask that turned up in the audiences until everything shut down. But so, so you know, I was going around doing all these things, and pe- people just came out oblivious. You know, they were just massively showing up for things. W- what I did though along the way is I made sure that. That you know, we weren't going to do signings after the talks. Mm-hmm. Okay, smart. Um, uh, and we were going to advance sign, and they they spun that actually very nicely, saying, "Look, you know, I've consented to sign all these books ahead of time, so you don't have to hang out." And that was great for everybody. That's a good job it, by them it too. Was, it was a win-win, you know. Um, so so, but as things got more and more 
sort of restrictive. Like my very last event was in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I was going to be interviewed by um, Tulsa Mayor uh, G.T. Bynum, a very cool guy. Okay. Um, and uh, we were going to do a, 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 an interview at a synagogue. And uh, that day, him being the mayor, he, he shut down all large events in, in Tulsa. You know, he's very forward-thinking. He was one of the first to do it. Shut down everything, right? And we did this. This is my, my very first quasi-virtual event because the, the, the synagogue was used to doing events where you were on camera and I think it was broadcast to their, to their crowd, people who couldn't, couldn't okay. manage to get to the, to, the, to the synagogue. So they were very good at this. It was like they had sort of a micro studio. So it was me and the mayor, you know, there in the synagogue, um, uh, you know, filmed expertly by these people. And that was my very first, you know, sort of remote thing. The crowd had, of course, been banished completely. Next day, I'm on a plane to New York, and, and the tour is over. That was March 13th. So that's early on. Yeah, but I, I, had, I had two and a half really good weeks of, of touring. In that time, the book hit the Times list, which is all you want. Of course. On most book tours, frankly, disclosure, when you're out traveling around, when your book hits the bestseller list, you're really ready to go home. Yeah, that's, you made it. <laughs> so in this case, the gods were... On your side. Well... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you could say that, I suppose. So anything, total shutdown. It, March 12th, the, the day of that last event of mine, of course, was my wife's birthday, so we will forever remember that. But anyway, but here's what happened. The book had, had gained a lot of momentum, was selling really well. But what happened with the pandemic is that people really wanted... Th there was something about reading about Churchill and his leadership during this awful time that gave them courage, encouraged okay. them. I heard this all the time. And the book, if anything, took off. So I, 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 got, I got very lucky. Then, you know, what happened sort of mid, midstream, um, first, I don't know, when was it? First three weeks or so, then came Black Lives Matter. Suddenly, I've never seen this before, suddenly the New York Times bestseller list Every single book was on race, mm -hmm. you know, and, you know, Churchill is old, know, new, old news. Being, yeah, it's old news. So, but the book is still doing really well. We actually put off the paperback um, until um, this coming February because it was doing well. Usually you, you do a paperback one year out, uh -huh. right? But in this case, so well, the hardcover keep it going. Yeah, yeah. Why, why? do otherwise yeah you, you do so many interviews and I'll never say are they tedious because you know I do work in radio with other people too and people that's how you make your business you keep doing the same thing do you like doing interviews not like mine I'm not trying to say pat me on the back where we don't just speak about the book itself what pat me think? on the back Mr. Larson because <laughs> I always want to talk different things with you like so here's my thing I want to talk tennis with you do you mind if we talk a little tennis no absolutely will you be going to the US Open this year no why not nothing to do with the pandemic okay more to do with the fact that we have gone every year. We've gotten the grounds passes. Of course, you, you're is, Eric Larson. That, of course, that is, that is the, the thing to get the grounds passes. No, no. I mean, what do you mean? Well, no, I, we pay for these passes. You know, this is. The, I just love the grounds passes because you get to watch every single everything tennis yeah. match. You know, mm -hmm. you, you've done that, right? The of grounds course. Pass. Yeah, I love tennis. And and we did it year after year after year, and it became almost like a, a dutiful thing. Mm -hmm. And as we went along, you know. Um, Honestly, it seemed like it seemed like the weather for the U.S. Open got hotter and hotter and hotter and hotter. It's brutal. It's brutal. And so we just sort of like we're like, you know, we don't have to go this year. We don't have to go this year. And it's like the pandemic has has been, I think, for for us in a number of ways, a way to 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 stop doing some things that we're had become just sort of a a thing. Like, like a routine I, like thing I used to. Do? I, I always had this um, for the last. Five six years, I had our New York Marathon brunch, and because because our apartment overlooks one little stretch <laughs> of, of the, the race course. Okay, and so and it was always called "Thank God I'm Not Running Marathon Brunch," <laughs> and so I invited all my writer friends, all uh, all our other, other friends, all my kids' friends, their friends, and all this stuff. You'd have like 50 people having bloody marys, and and I've never got and, the invite one time, by so, the way. Never once. You are on the list <laughs> if I ever do it again. But what I'm, what I'm saying, what I'm say, I should have invited you. Um, so, so, but what I'm saying is that, that you know, it got to be a thing 
but it also became sort of a a thing. Like, like an obligation? Like, yeah, yeah. And now with the pandemic and post-pandemic, we're like, I don't think we're going to do it this year. We're going to have some friends over, you know, and, and maybe the next year. Mm-hmm. But it's a way to just sort of put the brakes on things. Just like I'm, maybe you found this also. It's like, you know, I'm sure we all have, we have, we have our circle of really good, close friends, you know, and, and, and but then there's always the sort of the obligatory. You have to have dinner because we haven't had dinner in three months thing. Yeah. 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 And so now it's like, forget it. You know, I'm done. I'm done. I don't need to have dinner. You know, I don't, it sounds cold, but no, it, it doesn't. L- let me ask you a question about tennis. Cause growing yeah, up yeah. for me, it was Sampras, Agassi, a little, you know, rafter. That was it. And then you went on and it was Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, and now it seems like it's been those three for 15 years. Is, now, this sprinkled guys in. Is tennis need a new person? Because it well, seems like it's every year it's Nadal, yeah, Djokovic, yeah, 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 Federer. Yeah, yeah. We, we need new blood. Well, you know, my tennis buddies and I have actually been talking about this. Just, just last week we had this, this, this conversation about, about that. And, you know, we're going to get new blood because these guys are not getting any younger. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, Djokovic is still incredible. Federer, I, 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 I think he's... He's faded. He's, he's faded. He's fading. I think I would not be surprised if he retired in the next year. Mm-hmm. Nadal is incredibly powerful, great pleasure to watch. But you know, it's, the way he plays is a, is a muscle it's and so bone killing game, and it's it's going to cost him. So I think what's going to happen relatively soon is that soon being in you know, the next couple of years, Djokovic is going to be uh, continue to be dominant. You know, but there are going to be these other guys who are who are coming up now. Any, whether anybody else has the charisma to to be that counterpoint to Djokovic in the way that Nadal and Federer mm-hmm. have been, I I, I don't know. Um, it, it's a it's a it's a real tough crucible. So and yet the, and wi- the women's side, it, I think the women's because it's always Serena, but then you have Osaka, you have Sloane, Coco. There's a lot of young people that you get excited to watch. Yes, although Serena has been the dominant force, oh, she's and, it, and she will continue to be that until dominant she leaves. Force until she, yeah. Um, but yes, but in in terms of, of of women, I was very impressed with the um, British player, the young woman who had to fold because of not Barty, right? No, um, she had to fold because of uh, breathing issues, asthma or whatever. Yes, and, and, Ma- and uh, didn't McEnroe have to make a comment about it that she couldn't handle the pressure? Or someone made a comment about it that I she couldn't handle. I don't think it was. Was it McEnroe? Did no, he say something? No, it like wasn't. That? No, McEnroe made a comment about someone's wife. Uh, <laughs> you're right. Someone made a comment about her not being able to deal. Yes, 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 yes. I mean, come on. I know. I know. Come on, it's brilliant. Pl- yeah, I. I but anyway, but I th- but I think on the women's side, I think there are some really charismatic young players who are going to yes going to come up the path, and, and yeah, my hope would be that there'd be like three or four of these young female players in a death match. I love it. I mean, not death match, but <laughs> no, you know, of course, you know what of I course. mean. I like 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 just fighting always the final every... four with them too. Yeah, 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 yeah. In your Churchill uh, research, did you go to Wimbledon? Did you watch? You ever watch a, a match there? Did what? Ever, ever watch, watch a, a match at Wimbledon? I, I have never been there live. Me either have I you have you toured the grounds though? No, no, no. I don't want to tour the grounds unless I'm okay. Okay, that's unless fair. I'm playing and I'm yeah. never going to play. <laughs> Any other sports Eric Larson is into? Uh, no, no. I'm a tennis player. I'm a tennis player. I don't have. My wife would be the first to say I don't have. I don't have the sports gene. Okay. You know. Does you she? Know? No. <laughs> How about any hobbies? My wife is a big runner. My wife okay. is a big runner. She runs seven or eight miles every other day. So that's her thing. I to me that killed me. That would kill me. My, my mind would. Half a mile in, my mind would die, and and my brain would be dribbling out onto the onto the, the grounds of Central Park. Uh, any hobbies you have besides writing and tennis? Red besides wine. Writing, <laughs> that's not a hobby. That's a that's a life choice. Yes. <laughs> no, um, and actually, I've been drinking a lot less um, uh, red wine than usual. Yeah, you know, just I've, I've I've kind of tried to sort of ease up a little bit mm-hmm. on all that stuff. Manhattan's is fine, but <laughs> but no, my other my other things. I I, I love to paint. I love to paint. So I do watercolors, I do oils, um, and I, I, that's my thing. That's my thing. Which is interesting because there's never any pictures in your book. So that's kind of, why wouldn't you put any of your paint, uh, pictures in the book? <laughs> because. No, I, I, for me it's a very private thing. It's, 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 like, it's like therapy. I mean, I, 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 don't, I don't trade them. Uh, you know, I don't send my images to friends who, who I know paint. I mm-hmm. just don't want to. 
I don't want to, that this is like a totally private thing. Maybe after I've, I've, I've hit the final road, you know, somebody wants to do like what they now do with Churchill's paintings, mm-hmm. you know, where they'll sell for like 1.2 million bucks. I mean, you know, that's, that's pretty good for a guy who was really kind of a lousy painter, <laughs> you know. But anyway, but painting is painting is my thing. Um, yeah, and of course I love I love I love to to read. But those are those are pretty much it. Yeah. Can an author ever retire? Like it's so easy for a police officer to retire, a basketball player. Can an author ever retire? Because you, you're always your mind's always gonna be working. You always want to write. You always want to put out well, great material. Well, can an author retire? Yeah, sure they can. But um, I don't want to. I mean, the beauty of what I do is that I can do this literally until I drop, or until someone. <laughs> Yes, someone drops you. Someone the hook and says, okay, Eric, you are done. Um, but no, I, I intend to keep, keep doing what I'm doing until whatever. I mean, look at David McCulloch, you know, who's oh. done all these great narrative histories and so forth. I think he's 86, 85, 86. Still and he does a book every couple of years. So, you know, I'm, I mean, the beauty of what I do is I, I don't have to retire. And I don't want to retire. The problem is, you know, I'm old enough now to be on Medicare. <laughs> and the problem is, you know, I, I'm doing well enough with books and so forth. I have to pay for Medicare. <laughs> it's like, on, on what planet? You're doing too good. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, anyway. When you were on last time, I gave you a few Manhattans, and I tried to uh, seduce you and ask you what your next book was. Mm. And you said, I'll give you one hint. It's about a topic that's been written about a lot. So when you left, I told everyone to bar. He's writing about 9-11. I just thought for some reason you moved to New York. You're going to write about September 11th. That's what I thought you were writing about. Right. You were going to pick something. And then you came out with the Churchill book. Which but the weird thing is, as you probably know, if you've done like, like checked out some of my past interviews, it was that 9-11 was the impetus. Inspires you, yes. Yes. While moving to Manhattan and seeing what the, you know, how different it was, obviously, for, for everybody who actually was a resident of New York. And then thinking about, well, what about, what about London? With at the peak of this German air campaign, you know, 57 consecutive 9-11s, and then many more raids, even worse afterwards, but at longer intervals. It's just how do you deal with that, right? How do you deal with that? And I thought about finding a typical London family, going to the Imperial War Museum, look through the diaries and so forth. Then I thought, wait a minute, why not the quintessential London family, Churchill, his family, but my emphasis, the thing that made this book different, I feel, was that my focus on just the, the everyday aspects mm-hmm. and, and his family, you know, in particular, um, uh, the, the character who made the book was Mary Churchill. You know, when I, when I learned about her diary, I was like, wow, I, I have to get this. Mm-hmm. And at first, um, uh, my access to it was declined. Nobody was allowed to look at it. Um, and the head of the church archive center, this guy I eventually sent my book to, he said, well, you know, you could always petition um, uh, her daughter directly for the right to look at the diary. I mean, it was eventually going to be part of the Churchill archives anyway, but they weren't ready yet to, to do so. It was okay. being archived and all this. And so I did, and I waited uh, a number of weeks. Um, and I was pretty sure that I was, you know, it was a, a dead end, but I'm used to dead ends, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's fine. You, you throw out a zillion things, and... Some come back, some don't. So um, I didn't really think much about it. And then one day at 4.57 a.m., I get this email um, from the daughter um, saying that I could have access to the diary. And the reason was, she said, because she had read my previous book, um, Dead Wake, about the, uh, about the Lusitania, um, which has a Churchill element. And in that book, I did not fall for the Churchill conspiracy thing that he knew all about yeah, it yeah. because he didn't, you know. Um, and she found my, my portrayal of him very respectful. And that's what wow. convinced she had, she had not realized that I had written that book. And now she put two and two together and she felt, ah, okay, so, so yeah, I, I, I see that you're, you're going you're gonna to do a respectful job. <clears throat> and then she gave me access, and that made a huge difference. A huge difference. That changed the whole book, right? It did change the whole book. Although, although I, I do feel, I do feel that I, I, I could have worked around, around it if I did if not have to. access, because that's that's the way books are. I'm going to ask you a geeky question. That as a reader of the book, yep. when you write this book, does Eric Lawson 
do, okay, I'm going to do write about this, 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 and this, and then research it? Or do you do all your research beforehand and then start the book? You know, I, I tried, well, first of all, it, it's sort of a weird mix because with nonfiction, uh, <clears throat> it's not like if you write a novel, you send the whole novel, right, to your publisher and they say yes or no. With nonfiction, you do a book proposal. Um, book proposal says, you know, opening chapter, essay about what you're going to try to do, and at least the way I do it, mm -hmm. um, uh, uh, capsule outline. Everything that's going to be in the book. Sort of an educated guess about what each chapter is going to look like. And that's my proposal. I send it to my agent. My agent sends it on to my editor, and they say yay or nay. And so I've already done basically six months of research. Six months are in the box already. Then comes the really earnest research, the archives, everything else. And yeah, I would like to have everything in hand, you know, everything done, but it never works out that way. I usually get to the point where, you know, I have critical mass, um, and I start thinking to myself, you know, I gotta start writing this thing or I'm gonna go nuts. It's like the book really wants to be written. And so then, you know, first thing in the morning, I get up very early when I'm in that mode, four o'clock, whatever. And I'll start, part of that is to avoid city noise. Let me tell you, this is a revelation about New York. <laughs> so, <clears throat> and I thought, I thought I had a beat. I thought I had a beat by getting up at 4 o'clock until the city um, decided to build the playground across the way and arrived at 6 a.m. every day. Oof. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, anyway, my God. Anyway, so I try to have, I try to have absolute critical mass. Um, I, I start writing one page a day. That's my page a day mode from okay. four o'clock until maybe six a.m. Have breakfast and then back to the research, and that goes on for a couple of months until I realize that I'm really I'm, I'm ready to just keep writing. You know, so then I write more and more and more. But I'm still always doing the research. Keep doing the research until the last day. Honestly, I mean, if I if I if I write a, a particular scene where I'm trying to describe a moment where something happened, um, and suddenly I realize, you know, wait a minute, I, I need to know what the street lamps look like, right? I say, okay, let's let's find out, and you can find out. <laughs> it's, you know, if you look hard enough. So, yeah, so that's that kind of thing. Uh, another fan question to an author: You're writing the book about. Uh, Churchill's first year. Right. Is that right. a good thing or a bad thing? Because a good thing, it, it keeps you in check. Like, hey, I can only, ch I'm hanging out in this one year zone. Right. But <clears> a bad thing is because you can't, you know, I know you have so many things, you're doing so much research, you have so many right. facts, you want to maybe tell another story. Does that, is that a good or a bad thing? So, so um, I, I think generally speaking, um, constructing a book around one year in the life, I think is, a, is, is not a good thing. Um, the reason I did it in this case had nothing to do with the fact that this was the first year of Churchill's prime ministry. It had everything to do with the fact that everything worked out so neatly that this was where the story unfolded. I mean, this German air campaign, which began, you know, with, you know, <clears throat> sort of, you know, bombing ships in the Channel and so, and then working up through London and on for, for it ended on May 10, 1941, which was. How convenient. The last day of the first year of Church's prime ministry. I, I, to me, from a narrative perspective, I felt like I died and gone to heaven. Begins May 10, 1940. Ends May 10, 1941, um, my narrative, um, because the elements of my story did that very thing. The, the German air campaign, and I'm very careful to say German air campaign, not the Blitz, because the Blitz was sort of a a construct that came later. The German air campaign went through that entire first year. This is the first German air campaign, the most important of the war. Um, others followed off and on, and then came the, the V weapons and so forth, but nothing equaled the threat of this first campaign. And so, so to me as a writer, I mean, th this is what made me do the book. The 9-11 aspect was the, the trigger, but what made me commit to the book was this confluence of things that, that came together in that first year. The German air campaign came to an end on May 10, 1941, after one of the most severe raids. People literally woke up the next day like, wait, what's happened? It's so quiet. And it stayed that way, you know? But so along the same lines, though, then came Mary with her romantic involvement with Eric 
Eric. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Surrogate Eric. Her romantic involvement with Eric. Um, and, you know, that blew up on that weekend. On that weekend of May 10, 1941. It was made for a writer, really. And that's when Rudolf Hess, the, you know, the, 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 the famous Nazi wacko, you know, flies to Scotland, you know, parachutes into Scotland <laughs> on May 10th. It's, it doesn't get any better than that from a writer's perspective. So anyway, so that, that's, that's why it's one year. It's not because it was one year. Yeah, you, you didn't because, make it that. That's no, it's just, yeah, yeah. So. When, when writing this book, it's funny, you're writing this book, you're tweeting, you know, you're on social media. Do you ever think back then, because there was a couple things happening, you were describing the bombings, we can't say blitz, you know, th- there was death. No, you can say blitz, but blitz accounts for that, that very specific period where there were 57 consecutive nights of bombing. And there was bombings, there was fires, there was death, <clears> and yet life went on, people were still partying, right, they were still right. Imagine, did you ever think now, like, oh my God, social media with the videos and the picture, oh. did, did that come in? And let me ask you another question about the social media. Uh, Churchill's first year, he had two easy tasks. Fight off Hitler and get the USA to join him. He needed the United States to join him in this war. Right. Did you ever think now, when it came out, imagine social media with, or, or the protests. Because no matter what, it's going to be half people want the war, half don't. Can you imagine that? Because we might have gotten, who knows what would have happened. Did, did that ever come into your mind, like writing this? No, but now that you raise the point, you know, it, yeah, it be, sort of would be endless flack from, from every direction. And I guess, I guess it speaks to the idea that, you know, at some point you have to... If, you, if you're in, in a governing position, you just have to sort of tune it all out because that is, every, everything's coming f- at you from every single direction. And you, you can't function, you know, if you try to make everybody happy. So it's like, you know, I, you know when I, I'm on Twitter, as you know. Mm-hmm. And, and um, you know, when somebody comes at me with some bizarre thing, you know, I've, I've, <laughs> I've taught myself don't engage don't engage, block. Yeah, you ha- that's the only yeah. option. Block. And um, that's all you can do. Because I was thinking, like, Churchill was telling his guys, we need the United States. We have to find... And I'm just thinking, imagine someone else telling us, and be like, we're not getting involved in another war. Like, it just kept... That's all I kept right, thinking right, right, about. Right. And I kept thinking about videos, like... Well, but now, you know, Twitter and, and Facebook and so forth aside, in the era, there were those things, um, in a sense. There were surrogates for that. There was political reverb... Um, and, and, and it wasn't coming from Twitter or Facebook, but it was coming from, um, you know, like, like, like America First group, um, people on both sides of the aisle, and from newspapers on both sides of the aisle, but everybody read newspapers. So that was the difference. Okay, okay. You know, that they had power because everybody actually read them. Now, today, nobody does, no. but, but they did at the time. So... So you, you can't go one for one to say, well, what if, what if Twitter had existed? What would have happened? Because there was a sort of a Twitter. Like, like, like Roosevelt knew that America did not, he had an instinctive sense that America was not ready to actually join World War II. Was not physically ready to join World War II. Um, but he knew, I believe, in his, and his, I'm not the only one who believes this, in his heart of hearts that eventually we would. Um, but, you know, for him to have come out and said, okay, we're going to jump in, would have been politically disastrous. But it would have had nothing to do with Twitter or anything else or, you know, newspapers, whatever. Mm-hmm. There was enough sort of political um, um, uh, mojo on both sides that, that he would have felt constrained. I don't want to ask you what the most surprising thing that came about. You know what surprised But you are. I'm going to because I have to. It's a generic question, but you know what surprised me the most? What? Churchill's financial problems. That actually surprised me because I'm like, whoa, he had financial... Because you don't think of a politician having financial problems. Th- that was, for me, that really stuck <clears> out for me. He had serious financial problems. Yeah, I thought that was, that was, that was very, very interesting to me. But, you know, I, th- I think for me the most surprising thing was... Um, well, a number of things were re- really, really compelling to me. One was um, the threat of invasion from Germany... I had not appreciated this, was a very real, concrete thing for, for people living in London, people living in, in, in Britain after France fell. And, you know, you just think about that for a minute. The, the very real probability that Hitler and this massive armed force that he had accumulated were going to invade. 
literally you could be sitting there in your you know house in the country in Oxfordshire pruning your roses and you would see German paratroopers land in in your your yard you know I mean this was how acute the threat was and it eventually came to be apparent that Hitler was not super serious about invading mm-hmm. as there were those who <laughs> there were there was speculation that that Hitler just really was uneasy about water <laughs> he didn't like the idea of trying to cross the water to do this thing which is why he gave Hermann Goering um, the task of trying to achieve the same end strictly by air power which obviously proved to be you know, no he, he couldn't do it but um, so that surprised me other little details for example the blackout right the blackout and we know this because of um, surveys by the Ministry of Information, their intelligence unit. The blackout was the single most annoying thing about that whole period. Yeah. Okay, bombs, yes. It's the blackout. It's the blackout. It's like getting up in the morning. And yeah, Britain is way up in the north. And, and when they did double, double summertime, you know, where so it added an extra hour in the morning of darkness. <laughs> People were just really driven nuts by this blackout. And that, to me, was kind of a revelation, you know? So uh, another, I'm going to piggyback on what you said, the revelation that people painted their mailboxes that if there were bombs, you would know if it was poison. And if the church bells told it was going to be um, paratroopers coming, they, re- they handed out gas men. Like, they did stuff that was, they would have called hysteria right now, that they took part in oh right look we're in a culture right now where people aren't even willing to get vaccinated can you imagine no no like i when i'm reading it i'm kind of putting myself and it's weird without getting political i'm putting myself as just a church that was leading now during a pandemic and i was putting myself in that way i'm like oh my god people won't do it split down the middle it kind of it it was all over the place right yeah well one interesting thing though in that era was like with regard to the blackout right everybody obeyed the blackout Mm -hmm. you know um, and in part just because there was a pejorative element. If you didn't, you know, the hammer came down on you. You know, this was serious stuff. You know, there were wardens wandering around, and you you were made to, to lower your shades. You know, um, but yeah, it's like it's like first of all, one one little corrective thing um, in terms of the the, the paint. Um, the uh, official mailboxes, the city mailboxes, mm-hmm. had this gas-sensitive paint. There wasn't okay. people in their own mailboxes. Okay, okay, so okay. It was the city city. So thing. you would know so, if the city's... Yeah, so so the, the city had, um, uh, you know, London painted their, their mailboxes this, this, this gas-sensitive paint, and if it glowed or changed color, you would know that gas was present. The, the giving out of gas mass, very good example of, of, of you know... How the, how the government tried to sort of get everybody in with this program, and everybody had a gas mask. I mean, they gave out millions and millions of these gas masks. And people brought them to work in the morning. They'd get off the subway with a gas mask, you know, and the little kids got them. One of my favorite scenes is where, <laughs> is where the little kids um, put on their Mickey Mouse gas mask, right? Huh? Mickey Mouse very, gas very mask. Very similar to now. Yeah, and, and that... that, that, that they would they would try to kiss themselves, kiss each other <laughs> through these gas little, little kids, <laughs> and then they went back into class singing. There will always be in England. <laughs> to me, that's to me that's fabulous. What surprised you more that he was when he, when Churchill first became prime minister that he was considered you know Third Reich in this, or that he actually had an uh, approval rating of eighty eight percent approval rating? Which which side was more surprising to you? Well, I think I think the the thing about Churchill that really amazed me was that. Um, this guy always wanted to be prime minister, right? He becomes prime minister on May 10, 1941, the day that the so-called phony war, you know, I, I quarrel with the term phony war, lots of stuff was going on, but, you know, that's the, the quiescent period, the first year of actual, of the declared war. But May 10, 1941, when he became prime minister, was literally the day when Hitler turned that war from a phony war into the hottest of hottest wars by invading the Low Countries that day. And this is a guy who nonetheless felt that night, I mean, if it were me, I'd be like, shit, I don't want this job. <laughs> it's the worst possible day to get it. I'm giving up. Yeah. <laughs> Give it to Halifax. Yeah. Give it to Halifax. I, I am so out of here. But Churchill, Churchill was like, it made it even better. Seriously, it made it even better for him, the victory. He always wanted to be prime minister. Um, but this this event, all this happening, made it for him 
even more powerful a moment. I mean, can you imagine that? And that night he goes to bed with this feeling of like just really absolute joy. I would have, I would not have slept a wink. No. I'd be popping Xanax every. <laughs> <laughs> One more Churchill question: Did he? Um, you described it perfectly in the book that he had so many people around him they trusted a, a circle of people he really leaned on. Mm-hmm. Did people know that he leaned on it, or just was that from research? Because he let what it be you, known. Because he let it be known, like you let it be known in the book that yeah. Churchill relied on certain people for something. He had a strong right. cabinet that he really. He listened to people. Right, right. W- was that something known to the, you know, the English, you know, the, did the UK know that he leaned on people or see the main guy? I, you know, I, uh, that's an interesting question. Did the, did the world at large realize the extent to which he relied mm-hmm. on these guys? And probably, probably not. But the reality was that he did. And, and that was very compelling because he relied deeply on people who he trusted to tell him the truth. Like Frederick Lindemann, the prof. He, he didn't want yes men. He wanted the truth. He didn't want yes men. And then Beaverbrook, you know, the head of the Ministry of Aircraft Production, he wanted people who would tell him the truth and also who would just sort of do their thing. And also he wanted a certain amount of strife. And he, and he got it, mm-hmm. you know. Um, I think that was a very compelling aspect of his leadership, especially in wartime. I mean, what you want in wartime is clarity. You don't want people giving you a happy view of what's happening. You want to know what the actual ground truth is. Give it is. to me straight. Give it to me straight. And Lindemann was, was definitely the, the guy for that. He was a, a little slash lot nutty, you know. <laughs> and Beaverbrook, he's one of my favorite characters. Beaverbrook is like off the wall. <laughs> yeah, like, you're nuts. Wow, I'd love to have had lunch with Beaverbrook. <laughs> Maybe have lunch with Beaverbrook. But I really like to have, have had an opportunity to do, you know, if I could go back in a time machine. Let's go back to Checkers for one of those dinners, you know, on a Saturday night at Checkers with Churchill and all these officials gathered around the table drinking like fish and talking about what's really happening in the world and the dynamics of, of all this stuff. I would have loved that. Question about your book. I actually don't know the answer to this. Do you do the audiobook or does someone else do the audiobook for your stuff? So what made you ask about audiobooks at that point? Because right when I was on the train today, I Googled you quick and it came up audiobook. So, so... But I mean, literally, like right now, what just zipped through your head? I, I know it's in one of my notes. I remember <laughs> reading my notes because I, okay. I, I want to finish Churchill and move on to Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I don't do my own. Okay. My I, I have done um, for this book, I did the author's note at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But a, a really talented guy did the, did the audio book. Um, but... Disclosure, I, I have something coming up. I'm not going to tell you what my next book is. I'll we, turn the mics off. You tell me. No, no, I'm not. <laughs> I, I'm not going to tell you what my next book is. However, however, so you may be intrigued by this. So, so let's go back five years. My book Thunderstruck came out, which is about Guillermo. Did we talk about that book in one of our things? No, we no, did we Devil in the White City and The Garden of Beast. Those are my two books we talked about. So Thunderstruck is about uh, Mark Marconi, the inventor of wireless, and. Um, Holy Harvey Crippen, uh, Britain's second most famous murderer after Jack the Ripper, and the intersection of their characters. So anyway, uh, I was on the book tour for that for that book, and there's a lot of downtime. There always is. I just thought, you know, I'm going to write a, a a story, the kind of thing I would really want to read, and I just played with this thing and played with this thing and wrote something, and I was going to give it to my fans through my website as just like a Halloween treat, right? And one thing led to another. And so now, come September 28th, this thing is being launched. It's an audio original. That, that, that is to say, um, you know, I mean, publishing actually met me. Like, like, like I, I had written this thing. <laughs> it's going to give it away. And publishing evolved in a way it was like, yeah, that's perfect. The audio original. It's only audio. And it's a ghost story with footnotes. That is to say, the underpinnings are all real because of things I learned from Thunderstruck, but it's just a great ghost story. So it's coming out um, uh, September 28th. Okay. You are the first Boom. public entity Boom. to know this um, in time for Halloween, and it's just it's just fun. It's just fun. So, so and the reason I say that is because I am doing the the, um, the source note essay. I narrated just last week at East Hampton. I did the 
did the voice thing. That's fun. Are you ready to finish up with some quick hit questions to finish up the podcast? I remember you did this stuff. Yes. Okay. Oh, wait, one other question. How important is characters to you? Because you did the Churchill characters, the Dodd characters. Are characters important to your story or well, not? Well, let's be very important. Let's be very, very clear about when, when we say characters, we're talking about historical characters, real life characters. This is nonfiction. We're mm-hmm. not playing with, with, with history. That, it's everything. It's everything. Churchill. Churchill. Wow. I mean, such a compelling character. You know, you almost have to, how do you choose what you're going to say about Churchill but the characters you know for example Mary um, you know how, how powerful she was Beaverbrook Lindemann um, Pamela Churchill and her affair with Avril Harriman I mean you know this stuff is like this is the beauty of nonfiction is you can't make it up the fact that Pamela Churchill meets Avril you know they, 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 they know each other a little bit they're at a party together an air raid happens and they end up screwing this <laughs> is like Wow. And then there's a source on record saying, well, you know, an air raid is a great way to get a guy into bed. <laughs> I did not know that. Now I know. That's my new game. <laughs> Hopefully it's not something coming up in the no, near I future. Hope not. Let's hope not. Anyway. Anyway. Okay. You ready to roll? All right. Ready. You answered this last time. You and I hanging out at a bar like this. There's yes. more people here. Yeah. Who's the coolest person in Eric Larson's phone that if you texted them, they would text you right back? I'll even throw an email. If you emailed someone and in like three hours, who would email you back? Coolest person to impress people. To impress people? Yes. Amor Tolls. Would write right back to you. Yeah. Gentleman in Moscow, author. Great guy. Great guy. I thought you were going to say Tom Hanks. I'm not sure that he would write back right away. (laughs) (laughs) How about this? One show you found yourself binge watching during the quarantine that you never thought you'd watch. Oh. Did we binge watch during the quarantine? Well, you know, we tried watching Emily in Paris. Okay. Got through four episodes, and I was like... You faded? Come on. Okay. 20, 20-something 20 wardrobe that, you know, you couldn't afford if you made like a million bucks a year. <laughs> Fluent in French. It's, it's just, the, the fantasy is good, but it was too much. Okay. Too much, you know. But one, one thing I loved was um, uh, there was a... a, a couple of seasons ago it's called occupied okay never heard of it great it's a norwegian production it's really well done so partly subtitles partly english partly whatever it was created by joe nesbo the thriller writer mm-hmm. and it, it's a very plausible scenario for this thing it begins with norway deciding not to to no longer sell oil to russia because of climate change they're shutting down their wells okay right Russia doesn't like this. And so what follows is this like slow, chilling occupation of Norway by Russia with these fantastic characters. It's just, I recommend it. I recommend it. Occupied. Occupied. When Netflix. You, when your book was on Sopranos, and the reason I'm going to bring this up is because I, <laughs> I don't watch much TV. I don't watch much I've movies. i so But you know what's funny? I, I don't watch TV or movies that much. Okay? Yep, I'm a sports yep. guy, documentaries. Yep. And I think it was two years ago, I was flying and I downloaded like all the Sopranos the first time I watched it and I, I saw the dude roll over with the Sopranos Devil in the White City and I'm like I gotta text Eric Larson and my wife my girlfriend Tom's like you, Mike this show's 10 years old you're not gonna you look ridiculous telling him I'm like oh okay when that came on did, you, did your phone blow up so so <laughs> so Vito yeah, Vito yeah, had you yeah, right yes, yes okay. I, it, was, it was the firefighter right who was reading yes yes yeah. the Vito was with the uh, he was having the affair with the other dude and I think the other dude was reading so, so, so I have to confess to you though I have seen like three episodes of the Sopranos okay yeah <laughs> you know yeah I, I, I'm not a big TV guy either. I, I watched some to I mean Breaking Bad oh my god I loved it we oh I just the, watched that we watched the whole thing there's a point in Breaking Bad where you, you either commit or, 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 or you, you go hide mm-hmm. in a cave and that's when the little kid gets killed. Remember that scene? Yes, of course. And it's like, okay, do we continue? Do you go all not? in or you fade? Yes. Right. And we're like, all right, we're in. <laughs> so, yeah. But, you know, I mean, that, that was really powerful. We also watched. So this is, this, is a, this, is, this is an interesting pandemic thing. We fled out to, to Eastern Long Island. I have a, a little, very simple little place in, in, in Southampton. And believe me, it's a very mm-hmm. simple little place. Mm-hmm. No, no, no. <laughs> truly, 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 truly. And my sister lives around the corner. She has lived there for 30 years. That's why we decided to try to get this little place in. 
And so um, pandemic occurs March 19th, um, when things are starting to look kind of bleak. We go out there thinking, okay, we're going out for a long weekend just to let things cool down, right? Things don't cool down. No. So we stayed there f until May oh, wow. 10th, and then came back to the city. So we're out there, and with my sister, we watched Grace and Frankie. Do you know that show? I do not. Yeah. Why would you? You're young. <laughs> Grace and Frankie, hysterical. It's fantastic. It's like an old Jane Fonda and an old Lily Tomlin <laughs> <laughs> in this wonderful comedy. It was hysterical, and it just sort of helped us through the whole thing. We would, what we did was... Um, we watched it every other night. Um, we'd watch it at our place, and mm -hmm. we'd cook dinner. We'd go over to my sister's place. She'd cook dinner. We'd watch it there, back and forth. No exposure to anything, you know, and it just kind of helped us get through it, you know. I'm not sure I'm going to watch any more episodes, but it was, <laughs> it was really fun. It was really fun. You said you write in the morning. I yes. know some people that write at night. What's one snack you're always eating on while writing? Well, Oreo cookies. Oh, that's your thing? Well, you sound pretty confident. Like you... Okay. I'm very confident because that's it. Okay. It's like, it's like one, one, one Oreo cookie. That, that's all I'm allowed. One Oreo cookie with a cup of coffee first thing in the morning. That's what sort of helps generate the, the whatever. You've written about... What I would love is a bag of Fritos, but okay, we no. don't go there. Okay. Go there. You've written about iconic figures and yep. you know legendary figures. I'm not a memorabilia guy. It was funny. I was telling these guys, I don't collect memorabilia unless the person is on my show. Then I want, I want one stupid thing from them. Have you collected any memorabilia or do you have any keepsakes from any of the writing that you did? You know, I'm not a memorabilia guy. I'm not. Um, people sent me stuff. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I'm always pleased when they do. And like, that, I'm always, like that action figure right in front of you, Eric Lawson? Yeah. The thing, <laughs> the thing is gonna, that's going to get me busted on the subway, Without right? a doubt. <laughs> um, I just, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not into that, that stuff. I mean, to me, I'm very... I'm all about I'm all about moving forward. You know, I you know, I just want to keep moving forward. I, f I finish a book and okay, I want to do the next one. I, I don't I don't want to dwell in the past. I'm not I'm not the I don't want to be the World's Fair of 1893 mm -hmm. expert. I don't want to be the Churchill expert even though the, the the Churchill world kind of wants me to be. I want to do the next thing. Speaking of the next thing, I, I'm not going to ask what it is. Do you know in your oh, mind? Oh, you want to ask. Go ahead. Go I ahead. won't ask because you'll tell me no. So go, so ask. What's your next topic going to be? I can't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what it's going to be? Yeah. How about one other question? I think but, I, but it is, by the way, yes. by the way, the same answer I gave before, I think actually works for this one, in spades. Okay. All right. Okay. All right. I, I, I'm already starting to wonder. Will I survive the the, the the you know blowback from this book? Well, well, that's kind of my question. Have you ever written a book or wrote a lot about a subject and then like ah, I'm not going to do it and, and you pass it up? Yes, yeah, because because of the book proposal process, I, I have I have killed three proposals. Disappointing to you? Is that like because I know you put work into it and then. Not disappointing at all, oh. because it's far better to kill a project after six months of work than to realize four years in that this is a dog. Wow. Okay. You know, that's interesting. So, so yeah, no, it's it's very important to me to 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 make that cut at the point where I've got this proposal. And and yeah, you know, one was one was I was sure that this was just the best book. Um, did a proposal. I loved the proposal. And I don't mind telling you what it was. It was about, there was, I, I was very interested in California, the water situation, California, Mulholland, you know, the god of California. Mm -hmm. And um, there was a, a catastrophic dam disaster. The collapse of the St. Francis Dam killed like 500 people back in 1928. And it was sort of the end of Mulholland's career which appealed to me, this god of California, you know, hubris and all, all of this stuff. I had this great proposal tracking how he created this water system, but also how he fucked up what... Can I say that? Yeah. How he, how he fucked up with this, this, this dam. And, man, the proposal was really good, and I sent it to my agent. And the minute I sent it to my agent, I realized, no. 
it doesn't work. It was one of those instinctive things. And the thing that was missing, as best I could qualify it for my agent, was, was missing heart. Missing heart. And I, I, I don't even know how to define that. So that died. And did he also tell you that he didn't want it? or? No. Um, he didn't, he didn't have a chance. He, he called me up after getting it, and I said, David, I'm not doing it. Forget about that email. <laughs> Forget that proposal. Forget the six months of work. I'm not doing it. Not that you have to plug anything because you're Eric Lawson, but to my couple thousand listeners, do you want to plug your Twitter, your Facebook, everything else? No. <laughs> Eric Lawson, I had a blast. And I know you don't have to come on my show because you do Cone and you do you – you are the NPR. You're the guy. And the fact that you came on is awesome. And – I'm going to tell you something. I have so many athletes on and so many like fascinating people, astronauts. The head of NASA came on. In other I, words, so many fascinating people. No, you had to have me on. No, no, no. I, I, I want to be honest with you. This is going to be an open moment here because the mics are on. But I had on the head of NASA, uh, Scott Kelly. You spent 365 <laughs> days in space. He came on. And when I tell people, oh, Eric, everyone knows your book. And it's okay, funny. Like, Chris and I, Chris, I went in Chris's office and he has the Eric Lawson books is lined up. I'm like, dude, he's like, it's so weird that you're the book. Like, you're the guy. And every time I mention your name, it's like, oh my God, you had Eric Like, You're like the, the cool dude that everyone reads now. So I appreciate you coming on and it really means a lot to me. And I just always love just kicking it with you and talking well, with you. Well, could you just tell that to my daughters? They don't think you're that cool, right? Are you, you kidding? You hung out with, you knew Tom Hanks and you, you can hang out with Leo and Marty. My daughters actually would think it very cool that I'm hanging out with detectives so far that's right well it's about time the department recognized my greatness Eric you, you know you know that I am actually I am actually his 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 uh, uh, uncle I am his uncle well I don't want to ruin it for you there's a new card Eric Larson you uncle just, you just gave me a new card no I gave you the PBA card this is the detective card oh <laughs> Eric Larson you can do whatever you want you can walk around with a serial killer figure uh, action figure now on the subway with the Eric Larson card <laughs> I, I may have to <laughs> Eric Larson this was a pleasure man thank you so I hope you had fun I did. I always have fun. Thank you, my friend. This is good. You, you know, you are really, I, I, I am not blowing smoke, and I've said this to you before, but you are really one of the best interviewers that I've come across. That really, he that really means, is. That means so because, much he says. Because, this is, this is probably, I mean, do you, do you do a lot of interviewing of, like, suspects and all that stuff? Or yeah, that's all, I, I just debrief people all day. That's all I do. So, so you know, and it's, it's the conversational thing. I, I, I yeah. So if I if I can help you find others, I'm gonna take this out of here and stick it in my I back pocket. Can I get you one more drink? Or are you getting no, out of here? No, I'm out of here.